so uh, so we're leaving this house and we say we'd like to make an offer. The realtor says, I'm going to put together some comps for you, right? And send them over so you can get a sense for what your offer should be. I looked him in the eye and I said, where we're going, we don't need comps. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Let's get to it. What's up? Do you have Do you have personal housing news as well as market housing news, or what's happening here? Yeah, so... On the personal note, we talked a few weeks ago about uh, about me crossing my barrier into hashtag adulting and deciding to <laughs> to pick up a crib, right? Yeah. So a crib has not been finalized, but I will tell you this. Last night, I went straight YOLO on this housing market. I love it. Yeah, YOLO. <laughs> um, and so, well, maybe we can... Uh, We'll, we'll, we'll back into what YOLO means, but to give some some rationale for the Lolo, YOLO can talk about the uh, the market situation. So you sent over to me this week, this New York Times article right, that talked about the national state of the housing market and basically says like, we are in such a low inventory uh, situation. There are less than 500,000 homes for sale across the US, which is less than half of what like you kind of typically see, right? Yeah. In Denver, Colorado, United States, <laughs> Earth, Earth. Um, it, it is a, it's kind of, it's one of those hot markets that is the extreme of what we're even seeing nationally, right? And so we're seeing this market with such low inventory. Um, I, I was looking at this, uh, this one Altios research, like report. I don't know if these numbers are exact, but I'm just going to say what the, the report says. Yeah. The inventory in Denver currently or as of when they did this was about 267 homes which is not a lot of homes the full city there's 267 that's, homes for that's sale what right that's now? what it says that's what it says i don't know oh, anyway my. okay yeah i, I maybe, maybe i missed the units i don't know but I, but I, <laughs> yes, what, what i'll tell you what i'll tell you though is that as a a person that's looking that doesn't seem crazy when uh, i just imagine when people are looking for a home like they're like uh here's the list of houses we're gonna go look at today yeah. or this weekend like when we go, like we meet with our realtor and there's like a house that's available. <laughs> like, so we all like get all bundled up, you know, and then we go like across Ask the city. Up, bundle up. Uh, so yeah, then we, we like go across the and like see a house and then we all come back home. Like it's a, <laughs> it, it, uh, so anyway, so this is leading to some craziness, right? Like I've seen, we've been looking for, you know, I don't know, eight weeks or something like that right now. And basically everything is going well above ask. Um, there's one place we went to where they said you have two hours to submit your offer. I mean, it's it's like silly dilly stuff that I thought yeah. only existed in the Bay Area, right? Yeah. But apparently, mm-mm. no, no. Well, I thought, everyone I, from the Bay Area moved to Denver, so yeah, no surprise. Um, yeah. So no, seriously, yeah. So it's it's kind of, kind of crazy. But so we saw this place yesterday that we really liked. Like it's in the location that we want. Um, it is like the the house that we want. Like if we could yeah. have designed the house, Boom. like it's it. And uh, and I pulled a straight Doc Brown on the real. Who's who's Doc Brown? From Back to the Future, bro. Okay, that Doc Brown. All right. Yeah. I'm so about... wait, did you pull a straight Doc Brown? Like you pull out some vegetables and throw them in the back of your car and then hit 88 miles an hour? Or are you talking about this a little different? That's not what I was talking about, but I did do that. 
There are a few <laughs> zucchinis in the back. But so uh, so we're leaving this house and we say, we'd like to make an offer. The realtor says, I'm going to put together some comps for you, right? And send them over so you can get a sense for what your offer should be. I looked him in the eye and I said, where we're going, we don't need comps. <laughs> and where are you going? I mean, is this the rocket ship? Is this some Dogecoin or what? Oh yeah. We got Dogecoin. We got Bitcoin. I was like, I'll offer you whatever you need to make my family and I, we have a family history that was sent along with this offer. Yeah. You wrote a letter, right? You better, you got to write a letter. Wrote all the things, pull out all the stops. I said, show me the stops and I will pull them out. Did you include like, I don't know, like an extra Dr. Pepper or like a Disney figurine or like some memorabilia? I mean, all of, all of it. You name a thing, you name, I filmed a Pixar movie and sent it along. (laughs) About uh, your child growing up in that house, right? Exactly. Uh, Have you seen Up? Oh, have I ever? Yeah. Yeah. The thing we filmed rivals the first like three minutes of Up. It is a, it is an epic tale. Um, And so we'll see, man. But this is a situation that we- Wait, so you haven't heard yet. The offer is lingering in the ethos. Yeah. Zombie. Yeah. Did you have to let it linger? Yes, apparently. <laughs> you just busted out a zombie. That is Cranberries, great. baby. Um, yeah, so anyway, I don't think so, we, so we'll see. We don't have licensing rights to the cranberries, so be careful. Don't sing it too well. Uh, that is great news. That worry. is such a good story. Um, yeah. Good luck no, with we, that. Yeah, we're, we're super excited. We'll see. Now I'm super nervous for you guys, though, because the market's yeah. so hot. How about I throw in an offer right now that totally sucks? Um, so the anchoring bias that is associated with my sucky offer, uh, makes your offer more likely to be accepted. Are we down with that? I mean, if that's what it takes, throw in some of your value stocks. Yeah. I'm just like, here, you can have, um, TDS, which is losing money right now. Like here you want it. I, you can have, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Speaking, speaking of TDS, um, what, how, what happened with your portfolio this week? My portfolio is pretty good. I don't really follow it week to week, but I think I was uh, pretty significantly up midweek and then last two days weren't great. I ask because, uh, so this was not a positive week for my portfolio or the markets. Yeah. I'd say broadly, I was, but I was curious because, you know, the different types of holdings that we have, I was curious as to what happened with your week. Um, no, so mine zigged when yours zagged. Um, it, I had a, a pretty solid week all in all. Okay. So basically the market... Um, and my portfolio effectively just wiped out February this week. Like that, that's basically what happened because February is a, a decently strong month okay. um, overall, but it wiped it out. And I think actually Monday, Tuesday, a few f- people freaked out and thought the bubble had ended, which I thought was hilarious because if you, if you're not planned for that, uh, you're being naive. I did nothing in the market this week and my investments are boring and I'm going to do nothing in the market next week. So, uh, I want the listeners to know now that we're worldwide that sometimes the things we talk about are just the interesting things. They're not necessarily things that you should jump into unless you're doodles and you're crazy. I mean, if you want, if you want to lose money, then you should invest in the things we talk about. I'm like the Pied Piper, baby. (laughs) Oh, dude. I love that Silicon Valley show. Oh yeah. We, we just started watching it again. It is. Oh, it's so good. The first. Yeah. I love it all. Um, So epic. Let's start off with the bubble bubble ending. Okay. Bubble hit it. So first, I think everybody that's been listening knows that, uh, according to Dougal's, the bubble will end over the next couple of years, predicting. But the bubble did not just end because the Dougal's indicator is saying this is not the year for the bubble to end. So that's I'm just going to stick with that. I'm going to stick with that. 
But at the same time, I can see where folks were thinking that because like stuff started getting hit uh, this week. There are a couple really strong negative days. And I think it's interesting just based on conversations I've been having with people to talk about why those days were negative, um, because I think there are some macro indicators that uh, that some folks just aren't in tune with. I mean, um, let me just jump in and and call BS on almost all of this. Like, who cares what happens day to day, Dougals? You're you're getting caught up in the noise here. To your point, it's important to not get caught up in in the noise, but it's important to understand the noise. I think because at least in in my mind, because if you understand the noise, then you then you can you can not panic. You we, that? we differ here, nah, but but go. All right, all right. So th- there so there are two things. Um, one is my girl Tina. You familiar with my girl Tina? Oh, there's so many girls named Tina. No, <laughs> there is no alternative. Um, so that, that's the. <laughs> There are many, many factors that go into what's going on in the market. But one of the things that's going on in the market right now is my girl Tina cruising down the streets. There is no alternative acronym Tina. That's basically that um, when when you look across all the asset classes that exist to invest in, right, people generally are saying, and by people, I mean like professional investors, institutional investors are saying, my money has to go somewhere. I'm not going to sit all in cash. And so when there is no alternative, you look at what's going to give you uh, the best return or the best return for your risk profile, whatever it might be. Here, and that's- for your Tina thing, let me just jump in. So GMOs, seven-year asset class, real return forecasts. Um, U.S. large equities, minus 6%. U.S. small equities, minus 8%. International large, minus 2%. International small, minus half a percent. Emerging, minus 2%. Emerging value, positive 5%. U.S. bonds, minus 3%. International hedge bonds minus 4.4%, emerging debt 1%, uh, US inflation linked bonds minus 3.6%, US cash minus 0.8%. Tina. Basically, I think what, what Skippy is saying is, uh, is that if you know where to look, there are alternatives. Um, no, but I'm agreeing with your Tina hypothesis. There's, yeah, a, there's, a, there's a few not a lot. places, but barely yeah. less than normal uh, yeah. by a long shot. Yeah. So, so one of the things that started happening this week was Tina is there is no alternative. And there was a little bit of like insight into a potential alternative, um, meaning. So if you look at uh, the long term Treasury yields, the 10 year note is what's looked at. And it went from at the beginning of this year, we were at a low of about 0.9 percent and it, it hopped over. It broke 1.6 percent. Right. And so that's one thing where you're saying now that's not a high yield, but it's like something. Right. And so basically there was like there's some alternative um, it also uh, it, that comes along with fears of inflation, all this other stuff. But people are saying, OK, there might be some alternative um, that could exist there. The more important thing that happened this week, though. So that was number one. Number two is that with that, uh, basically, there's a this gets back to my, the housing conversation too. Treasury yields have a pretty strong influence on home loan rates. Yes. Right. And so so effectively, when uh, when the yields are rising sharply, like there's a there's a hypothesis that people are going to start not wanting to necessarily like refinance and take out mortgages, yes, right as much, and so when that happens, then you start to say, well, well, what happens with like the mortgage bond and investors? So basically, you have these people that are now going to have to wait like a longer period of time to be able to collect payments um, from all all the mortgage bonds. They don't they don't think they're as favorable. And so they start to sell them. And does that make sense? When, when you switch to time frame, so you were talking about basically rates and yeah. how uh, long-term 
like the 10 year is going to impact mortgage rates, right? Which I follow you there. And then you switch to uh, bondholders delaying payments. Basically, if you think about someone that's, that's holding a bond, right? So a bond is a, it's a combination of a coupon that you have that you're going to, you're get like a coupon being the payment you're getting on that interest rate. And then the amount that you, the principal you can collect at the end. In, In the world that we're in right now, People are betting, these bondholders are betting on more people, um, the, the ability to lend to more people, right? So they're, okay. they're basically saying like, I can lend to more and more people because of, um, because there's like this increase in refinancings and, and home loans. I get, I get right? your time, yeah. yeah. And so basically now, if they're, if they're saying that, that these people are not going to be refinancing, then now, so they're, now they're basically saying like, I have to. Um, I have to, the, the time that I was talking about is I now have to wait longer in order to collect like the money that I think I was going to be able to make in the short run. I mean, like, I don't know. You're, that you're that's betting just... on the fervor. You're betting on the fervor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and, I follow and, the more lenders or the yeah. more credit worthy folks. Yeah. yeah, I follow that. And, and, and if, if, I, if I can't bet on the volume, right, that's coming through effectively, then I actually have to wait for this, the loans to mature. And that's not worth, like, it's not worth me actually holding these things in order to get like this low, the low rates that I'm getting on them, because I'm actually betting on a volume play, not on the, uh, not on the play of, of what the, the loans are actually worth. And so therefore they're not worth holding, therefore they're selling. Now the, the thing that's holding up that end of the market is that the Fed has like $40 billion in, um, in mortgage, in the mortgage market. And so like sure. that, that's helping to support the whole thing. So it won't like fall apart. But I, but I think that, that that's one of the things that's actually occurring in the market right now that's leading to the the sells and then the increase in yields can you buy into that or no a little bit i just think i don't care about short-term fluctuations like weeks months uh, i care more about years i i'll tell you that I, I if i was predicting things which is a stupid thing to do um bond rates are going to go up because they're a historic lows and so to see that uh, trend start to rip start to happen this week is is kind of interesting and to see people's reaction to it is very interesting. I, I agree with you. Like I, I think paying attention to years and not days is important, but I, I know that we, we differ in opinion here, but I, I do think that um, something for some folks that, that like just think about this stuff logically and need to understand what's going on, that it's helpful to have some narrative around the short-term fluctuation so that you don't think that it's, this is the end. Completely support that. So here's what, here's how I'm taking your point, um, it, which I think is a very good point, but it's just what happens with debt, right? So lenders, whoever, when interest rates are going down and there's more and more demand and there's more and more credit worthiness, we've talked about how there's more margin debt in the equity market than there ever has been. Like that's all good until the music stops, right? Because the reverse of that trend is, yeah, say you're just a mortgage lender and you have for the last 20 years basically had rates going in your favor. So you always found that next deal. Well, when rates flip and less people become credit worthy and less people can afford the speculative housing bubble you talked about earlier and all those things, the market dries up really, really quickly because it was all funded on debt and and that music eventually stops there. It's a big deal. It's like a, it's a, it's a Ponzi scheme. I know you're not big into econ, Right. But it's a, but I'd bring up a Minsky, an economist, like that he, he talks about the basically stabilization creates destabilization. Yes. Um, and it, the markets have effectively turned into a Ponzi scheme. 
at one point where you need the next hit in order to finance the last hit. And it's the point where the next hit doesn't come. I love that. Nice work, Doogles. Look at that. Nice work. Let's go arc to wrap up our bubble conversation. Perfect. You kick us off there because I think you you could better talk to it than me. Yeah. Well, there's there's one one component of it that I'll I'll talk to here is weeks like this are what show the vulnerability and fragility of something like Arc, right? Which has trademark last week. Uh, the YOLO uh, trip to nonsense was what that <laughs> um, Arc's portfolio was called. I'm going to highlight just one area of that portfolio that was also highlighted last week, but, but I think is particularly fragile. And that is in like the, the biotech healthcare side of that portfolio. That's really, really fragile. And this week um, pointed that out. And it, it didn't point out this week the fragility because of the drops necessarily, because directly because of the drops. It, uh, it highlighted it because last week we talked about the 13F for ARC. And, yeah. But the side of it that we talked about was the percent of, the, of ARC's portfolio. We did not talk about the percent of the companies that ARC owned. And that's where it gets real fragile. I don't know if this is where you were, you were trying to go. No, this is perfect. Yeah. Um, the ARC owns over 10% of something like 20 or 30 stocks, right? Um, and many of these are in the, the biotech healthcare space. And what ends up happening, it's kind of like the, the short squeeze situation we talked about before, although it has nothing to do with shorting, is if, if ARC hits a liquidity like crisis because of drops, they're going to have to start selling some stuff. And when you own 20% of a stock, which they have multiple stocks they own to over 20% of, that you then have to start selling, that's a meaningful percent of that company that then has so, to drop. And so it feeds on itself. Spit yeah, lips. right. There, no, there's lots of ways this can work. One is the people, the investors in ARC are probably going to be more volatile in, in all Kathy Wood stuff because she's been like superstar. So they're not the people that are like, oh, I'm buying this fund for the next 10 years. They're often the people that are like, oh, did you see it went up like 50% in the last three months? Like I'm buying this to make money. So if that reverses, they are very likely to pull their money out. As they pull their money out, ARC has to like redistribute, balance all their funds out. And that could mean, if you, again, exactly what you said, you own very significant amounts of these companies. The reason you own very significant amounts of these companies is because of the high flying nature of your fund over the last several things. So it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of you scream to the top and then you fall off a cliff coming down the other side because of all the, almost just the math at play here. You can see all the building blocks or crumbling blocks, depending on yes. how you want to look at it. You can like see them. It's a question of, like, what is the thing that like that makes it start to like, what's that Jenga block, right? I'm putting my hand in and I'm pulling out this block, yeah. right? I'm good at that game. So I know the Jenga box I'm pulling ain't going to make it fall. But <laughs> but some of them might, right? But you see all, you see these these like these Jenga blocks and you can see where it can all crumble. Um, oh, and it's very yeah. quickly. And, and so what, what does Kathy do this week? I don't know. I don't, I don't follow Kathy. I mean, she, yes, quiz, she, quiz player. What she, do you think uh, she did? <laughs> she took the middle block from the middle section of the tower and managed to survive. She took out the middle blocks, took out some of that liquidity and bought more Tesla is what she did this week. Well, the crash and burn is going to be great. Uh, I want to give credit to good writing. So the bear cave at substack.com had, had a pretty good breakdown of the arc stuff. Um, if you want to check that out. So, Hey, check this out. So that leads nicely into 
We've talked a lot about the negative side of the bubble that's happening right now. I want to talk about the positive side because the positive side is really fun. And I don't think we've done that justice. And also, I want to make you say fungible a lot. Sound good? That sounds great. The positive sides might be of a account. So I'm loving it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> so, um, oh, man, super rare art. Have you heard of it? Do you want to give a background for the listeners? Do I want to give a background to super rare art? Yeah. Do you um, know about I mean, are you, are you talking about my seven-year-old's art? Because that's super rare, if that's what you're talking about. <laughs> all right. You're going to be a jerk, huh? So I, NBA always. Top Shot, uh, super rare art, um, have been growing in excitement for uh, the last several months, I think it's fair to say. Both use um, blockchain-backed technology and um, NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens to basically validate a piece of digital art. So the easiest one to talk about is NBA Top Shot because everyone's familiar with like baseball trading cards, right? So when I was a little tyke, I was collecting all the baseball trading cards because I wanted the next Mickey Mantle because I wanted to retire, right? And uh, me and my buddies had, we had whole schemes around this, right? Did you? I've got a, I've got a Pete Rose and a Hank Aaron I'm holding on to just waiting for them to be worth something. Okay, so... Actually, about like five years ago, the economist did this deep dive on how the price of the Mickey Mantle card for kids like me and you completely destroyed the market because it effectively created a baseball card bubble. So all the cards I have, I mean, I have tons of like Ken Griffey Jr. autograph stuff. Tons. So so does everyone else, right? So it's like basically worth nothing. What's interesting with NBA Top Shot is it's the same sort of thing, but it's all digital. It's all on your phone or your computer. And you basically buy with cryptos and it's the authenticity is backed with cryptos. This is a really exciting idea. Like again, not an super creative, super creative. it's, It's awesome. And it's more than just like a digital picture. It can be like a game winning shot can be whatever else. I mean, me and everyone else that's heard about this, that's a sports fan, I'm sure logged in. Like they, they shut down. You couldn't even create a new account for a while. The demand was so great. I still haven't found a way to buy anything. Um, like, it's just a super, super cool idea. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really cool. I think I can get it really creative. And you're going to have, it's one of those avenues where more people can start to get involved, I think, in this stuff. Because you it's an outlet for creativity for folks that might not be able to, uh, I don't know, to, to flex that in other ways to actually be able to make money. And as you mentioned, the uh, the art itself is like, it's awesome. I mean, it's, awesome. it's, it's epic. It's epic. There are some of these... Um, not to take us too far from that, but uh, have you heard of Otis? No, tell me about Otis. Yeah. Um, so Otis is a market for, uh, it's not nearly as, in my opinion, not nearly as cool, but I think it's interesting from just the, like these uh, obscure markets kind of coming up. It's a market to be able to own portions of like, I'd say rare, quote unquote, rare goods that are part of pop culture. So like you can, if you want like the first Jordan ones that, some celebrity war, right? You yeah. can own like 0.6% of it at a time it goes on auction. Or if you like, if, oh, if it's like Sp- Spider-Man, like, you know, uh, issue number three, like if you want to own a part of it, you can yeah. like buy into it. Look it up. It It's, I, uh, I have no interest in owning like 5% of Spider-Man, like issue three. I'd rather just uh, like, if I want it, I'm going to buy, I don't want it, but if I want it, I just buy it, you know, it's, but it's so I, I don't have an interest in that, but I think that the market itself is like a sign of something pretty cool. Oh, it's super awesome. So I have some stats here. This is now we're switching over to another, another marketplace called super rare, which is digital art. 
on super rare um in february they predict sales will exceed 10 million in total sales um there there's uh digital art again like created by artists and it's almost like gif or video format there's a lot of stuff going on there selling for upwards of seventy thousand dollars like it's a it's an incredibly new space and so i don't think we've talked enough about that you got you also got the stuff happening with nasa and the stuff happening with starlink with musk and everything else like like people are talking about traveling to mars in the next five years and like sending people to mars there is so much cool stuff happening right now that i fully understand the euphoria and um I just wanted to talk about that a little bit because we haven't done a good job of expressing why some of these things are entering bubble territory. Now, I think what's scary is these really cool ideas, um, 99% of them are going to blow up and be worth nothing. 95% of it, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's only 70% of it. The stuff that lives on, you know, the stuff that makes it through the 2001 internet bubble, I'm sure will be, I'll be kicking myself that I didn't get in right now. Historically, the folks that create the first generation of these things, like most of them aren't going to make it, but they, but they create either asset classes or just innovations that can live on and, and be awesome for whatever the next version of what we think is the, the hot, the hotness today. I think it's yeah. awesome. Can, can yeah. I, can I drop in? So this might feel like a bit of a non sequitur, but on the art piece, can I drop in a little bit of knowledge that I, I thought was interesting? Please. And I'm, I'm going to go straight America. I'm going to be America right here for a moment right this this is a country founded on founded by gangsters we brought up hamilton uh a couple weeks ago right and i love how uh lin manuel my boy my boy lin he was talking about not jeremy i mean he, he's fine but lin manuel miranda hey i like jeremy don't talk yeah, jeremy's jeremy. fine i'm just he's, he's not my, my boy. boy lin sanity over here that's that's fine but lin manuel he was saying that uh when he read uh, the book by Ron Chernow, I think is how you pronounce his name, um, about Hamilton. He was like, this dude's a gangsta. He needs to like be immersed be in hip hop culture, which is yeah. right. This whole, this country is built on gangsters. And there is an art gangsta that I want to talk about that, uh, that unfortunately passed away um, in this last week. Right? I'm going to get the name a little bit wrong because my Italian is rusty. I haven't spoken fluent Italian in over 100 years. This guy is Arturo Di Modica, I think is how you pronounce his name. Are you, do you know who this guy is? No, you need to fill me in. All man. right, art gangsta. Those two words usually don't go together unless you're talking about Banksy. But today, I'm going to talk about this art gangsta. So this is the guy that created the. He was a sculptor. He created the sculpture that uh, of the bull in New York. No the way. Charging bull. Yeah. So he passed away from cancer, 80 years old, uh, last weekend. And now, so that is not why he's a gangsta. The story of his gangstadom comes from how that bull came to be where it is today, which I think most folks don't know. So I'm gonna drop some historical knowledge. So the bull, this guy, uh, he's from Italy, hence the name. Um, he came over to the US in the early 1970s and then and started sculpting and got like pretty rich and famous, uh, like uh, inner circle famous, right? Like the people that know, know sculptors uh, type famous, but made a bunch of money. And he felt like he owed a lot of that to America, this place that he could come to and um, fulfill his dreams. Yeah. So Black Monday in October of 1987, stock market drops over 20% in one day. And America started to get like sad, right? Let's say like, oh, we're entering some sort of like depression or something like that. And because America had given him so much, he said, I need to give back to America. So he, he spent over 300 grand building this sculpture of a bull um, no for way. the stock market. Yeah. Yes. 
And and so now here's where it gets real gangster. He wants to leave this bull outside of the New York Stock Exchange as like a symbol that we're going to come roaring back. Yeah. But he doesn't have any authority to do that. And so he and he and some of his friends study police patrols to understand when they start going around that area. So when they can yes. leave the bull. And he he studies the police patrols. There's like it's something it's like minutes, right, that they have between patrols to be able to drop this thing. And he goes and like drops it. And uh, and the New York Stock Exchange, like they see that there's this bull there and it's an unauthorized bull. So they had it removed and the public wanted no part of that thing leaving. And so there was a public outcry over <laughs> this bull being taken away. And so they put it back and it's been sitting yeah. there to this day. So this is like well, this is a, an unauthorized sculpture that was created. That is the reason why that exists today. But it is like. I, I, it's it's like often seen as like a symbol of Wall Street that Wall Street did not ask for. America that is, is gangster. America is gangster. That is an amazing story. And uh, for those who've been, like, it's such a freaking cool thing. Like, it's just, you want to take your picture with it and ride it and like, it's freaking awesome. Yeah, it's great. And can you imagine like that? that not That is the symbol of Wall Street in my eyes. Like as I was, I, I grew up on the East Coast. I was like seeing that. I don't even know if I knew what Wall Street was, but that was like New York. That's like a part of, you know, Empire yeah, State Building. That part bowl, of New York. Yeah, that yeah. Love the knowledge there. All right. I think we're Fish moving bowl. into a quiz time for you, though. Okay. So, all right. Here we go. All right. First, do you know that the price of lumber is up like 70% in the past few months? I, I did know that okay. because of my, um, my housing uh, search. What is driving that increase in the price of lumber, Dougal's? I don't know specifically. As an economist, I would assume that there's some kind of a supply crunch. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I assume too. You know, it's actually sawmill capacity. the The price of raw lumber, like pine, is uh, at 1992 levels. Like it's at its lowest point. Um, but there's been this consolidation with sawmills that have that's the entire backlog right now. Also, over the last um, 20 years or so a lot of land conservationists have like encouraged people to plant more trees on their land. So there, there's more supply uh, in Georgia and a lot of the South where they grow a lot oh, of that stuff. That's that crazy. Yeah. That's really crazy. Makes me want to look and see if uh, Kimberly Clark, where they're trading at. Anyway, continue. Quiz number two at current price levels, the energy use of Bitcoin is equivalent to what country? France. Uh, you're a little high. New Zealand. Oh, okay. So right. we talked about this before. We know as the price goes up, uh, basically the rewards for mining Bitcoin get greater. So people are willing to invest more in computing and energy resources. Uh, what price do you think Bitcoin would have to be at to uh, use the same amount of energy as the United States? I'd say 476249 Hey, you're pretty close. Off by factor two. If if Bitcoin goes to a million bucks per coin, they say the energy use will be about the U.S. Now, does that? I mean, what, just give me some reaction to that. That scares me. Like that does not seem okay. It scares me as like a human being. It gets me real excited about driving the earnings of Nvidia <laughs> because <laughs> you're gonna make more money that way. Nvidia, a lot of uh, a lot of where their their revenue and whatnot are coming from today is in a surge in in the price of chips, which is coming because people need computing power for Bitcoin. That is like that is like a okay. Uh, last quiz, and you, I think you know this one. What percentage of the population of the world lives on less than ten dollars a day? Fifty uh, percent. 
Something like I that. think it's 65%. Let me check yeah. the numbers here. So that goes in. I actually meant to lead off with this. That goes into my crazy idea that I want you to shut down, but I need some help from the listeners now that we're worldwide. So I want to find uh, individuals, hopefully multiple individuals, living in uh, countries like uh, places in Africa, Nepal, India, you name it, uh, who are living on... Wait, wait, so when, when you said countries like, and then you just named countries, can you give like the category of country that you're talking about? If you've read the book Factfulness, uh, he breaks it down into four tiers of income worldwide. So roughly uh, 7 billion people. Um, you have level one, two, three, and four. On level one, um, you're living on less than $2 a day and, and searching for basic needs, right? Uh, level that's about a billion people level two living on less than eight dollars a day about three billion people and the the jump in quality of life between level one and level two is just massive level three is less than 32 dollars a day and level four is the u.s europe and uh, places like that i have a crazy idea where i want to see if we can leverage um, our listener base to be in touch with people who hopefully have smartphones that are on say levels one or two. Um, because I would love to explore all the excitement of the bubble that we just talked about and see if we can send them a month's worth of wages for to hopefully make take that next step up, right? So I think the technology now exists and I'm just excited about the idea. I think that's a fun challenge and I'd love to uh, see if we can tap into some of that because I've really been moved by how meaningful some stuff that that to me or you probably, you know, it'd be like an extra cup of coffee or whatever. And it could really be meaningful to someone else to uh, advance the quality of life. Redistribute the bubble. Yeah, I think is a like, that's awesome if we can figure out how to do that. Well, I think first I want, um, if possible, I want people to hit up the Twitter account at Skippy Doogles um, and try and link us together with uh, some people who are in that range, level one, two, even level three, if you if you have those. I mean, I think we might leverage crypto to do it, but we, there's lots of options. Oh, yeah, I love it. At Skippy Doogles, people. G- give, us, uh, give us thoughts and ideas and connect us uh, to folks. And that that book, uh, Factfulness, I think is, is worth folks reading um i think the the like the high level takeaway of that book being the world is getting better but we still have work to do i think is uh is a great one and one worth embracing Douglas, do you remember like the you know getting the things in the mail uh when you're growing up about the kid from somalia and how you could adopt him and like you could put his picture on your refrigerator and stuff yeah Did you ever see those save the children yeah save the children like I just have this this crazy idea that with smartphones and and the technology that's available to us today, you can do that on a one-on-one basis without um, kind of writing a check to some foreign agency and never really knowing how it all works out. Um, but we'll see if that hypothesis is true or not. No, I I, I think there's a there's a the brilliance in that the. Um going back again to like the logistics of how, like how we get this going, it'd be great to get some, some like thoughts and ideas around, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you think about, uh, I'm going to equate this to political campaigns for a moment. When you think about the the shift that happened during um, Obama's run, you go from like large donors to, I don't want to know what his average donors were, but yeah. it was tiny, right? It's like dollars. 
was like the average um, donor, but it built up to be a lot. I think in the redistribute the bubble, you know, campaign that you're you're trying to kick off here. I think you can have people that don't necessarily have to get like how the way I see like save the children happening today is either you see an ad on um, TV, right, where you have to then you know donate whatever thirty bucks a month, or someone stops you on the street to tell you about it, and you like donate thirty bucks a month to have a, a crypto that doesn't have a middle person, right, taking out the overhead that that charities take out, which we've also talked about in a previous uh, episode. Right. And have just small amounts that ends up adding up to like something significant, quote unquote, small amounts from level four are huge amounts for level one. And if you can have a medium that doesn't, to your point that you brought up before, that doesn't uh, require all the nonsense that the financial systems uh, take out today, that doesn't require the overhead that charities take out today and can add up to meaningful stuff for people in other countries, I think people would be really into it. Yeah, so let's try uh, let's try a proof of concept here. If we have any success, uh, we can start to uh, we can get creative about how we fund that pool. But I I'm sure our listeners would uh, dive in and we could do that. Let's just see right now if we can prove the concept. Find a few people that uh, we can help and uh, and that'd be cool. Okay, what were your thoughts uh, three years ago when? AT&T bought DirecTV. You, I believe, have been a DirecTV guy for like two decades. Like, aren't you all about DirecTV? Is that a serious guy? I've never owned DirecTV. I don't know much about DirecTV. I do, oh, disclaimer, I do own AT&T stock. Oh, I used to, but I ditched it. Okay. So uh, did you have any, I had really thong, strong thoughts when that acquisition was taking place. Did you? Like Cisco? You said you had thong <laughs> thoughts. Um <laughs> So I thought you meant Cisco the company, and then I thought you maybe meant Cisco the one hit wonder from TRL, and that is brilliant. Strong, strong thoughts. I had some strong thoughts. Basically, that that was a dying business. Of course, it was going to fail. It was a stupid thing to do at the time. Here's the rough numbers. I haven't done a deep dive in this. Uh, in 2015, 18, I guess it's seven years ago now that this acquisition happened. They bought DirecTV for about $67 billion. Uh, they just sold 30% of the stake at a valuation of around $16 billion. So you just lit $50 billion on fire over the course of seven years. Like, I'm happy to do that for you, AT&T, if you're looking to hire. Like, the, uh, the high, highest level macro play like, makes a lot of sense for what AT&T has been doing, uh, meaning uh, media consolidation in order to take advantage of, of cable, right. That you laid down. I mean, like when I say cable, I mean the, like literally like the stuff you put in the ground, but the way in which they execute it is, is sadness. Like my, my only bet on with AT&T is the, uh, is HBO max, which is basically like, I'm betting that that at least keeps it even so that I'm getting the dividend return. <laughs> That's effectively yeah, well, it. in this world, this Tina, right. Me and Tina are holding hands and I'm buying AT&T. I mean, and I like HBO Max, don't get me wrong, but let me go back and just make sure I'm understanding. So in 2015, I don't even think the business made sense because they weren't buying Comcast or something else that already that laid a bunch of coaxial cable that they could expand their network to get like gigabyte internet service. They were buying a satellite provider and AT&T already had a service provider at the time. So the most valuable thing, well, not the most valuable thing, but one of the really valuable things with DirecTV was their NFL contract, 
well, just wait a few years and spend the $50 billion on the NFL contract. And you're going to like basically build your own direct TV. I, I never, it never made sense to me. Yeah. That, that's the issue. Like the issue is in part of what you were saying is you're like, wait a few years and, and that's just not the way like corporations work sometimes, right? They can, they can choose to, but I think many times they end up acting on um, like they see what competitors are doing and see what the market's doing. And there's a call to act. And yeah. so when you see media consolidation, they're like, what can we buy? But one of the, the issues that I see that happens in business generally is you go in with the question, which I'm sure is the question that was flagged in the boardroom at that time, which is what are we going to buy to make sure we're competitive and yeah. not should we even act yeah. like you've already assumed that there should be an action. And then if you if you're in the in the market at that time saying, what can we buy? Then direct TV makes a lot of sense any boardroom that's asking that question right now and i know there's a bunch of ceos that listen to this pod diggles i mean you, you need to take a step back because if you're saying what should i buy right now in uh, the bubble territory it's probably the wrong question so don't be at&t all right i got one more thing to hit and then uh i think we'll wrap coinbase coinbase is uh i think the first or second it's based in the Bay Area, first or second largest um, kind of crypto exchange. They have wallets, they have trading, they have everything else, right? Um, founded in 2011, if I remember correct. They are going to go public soon, so they filed their S1. Which is brilliant. Uh, like they, they, I don't know if they could have calculated to the day to go public at a better time. Oh, it's perfect. So I just found the stats interesting. Uh, 43 million verified users. 3.4 billion in total revenue, although um, 96% of their transactions is revenue, or sorry, 96% of revenue is based on transaction fees. Okay, that, was, that, was, yeah. <laughs> that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Uh, net income of about 300 million. It's just crazy because it's all, it's basically all fees on people buying crypto. And that really speaks to how ridiculous a lot of those fees are at the moment in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, their their long term play basically has to be a part of what you were talking about before, where there's um, it's it's pure volume play in the end that that's not how they're making money right now. I mean, they're making money in the volume right now, but they're making money on the volume of nonsense right now. Yeah. But the long term play has to be there's utility that's established somehow in crypto. And you basically it's the one percent of China, you know, thing that folks talk about, like you're getting like a tiny percent of something. Um, that becomes huge right now they're getting like a it's not huge but like a meaningful percent of nonsense but long term yeah. it has to be they're getting the tiniest percent of sense um which may or may not happen but they've established themselves pretty well in the market i mean i think that's a, a fair hypothesis i don't know why they can't be like a fidelity for crypto so the fidelity of crypto i actually i, I mean we, if you want to debate we can debate that i i think that that's a that's a heap of foolishness that just came out of your face. Oh, go right for there. it. Yeah. Well, basically, um, like there's no fidelity for currencies. So why would there be a fidelity for crypto? I think what you were, the sense you were spitting a week ago, I think was great in that like you find a utility for, for crypto and then you, you build off that utility. But the crypto itself, I actually, I don't think that that alone you can build a business around. Um, to go back to what I was talking about before, if you get a, the tiniest fraction of a percent for Coinbase's future, yeah. I think that they need to basically what they need to do is is figure out and fuel the utility and they could become like a roll up business for um, organizations that are um, that have like strong utility in crypto and they take a percent of that. I, I, I think that makes a lot more sense. Like it's 
um, this is going to be a crazy analogy that I can't even explain right now, but it's just what popped into my mentals is more like the Facebook of crypto is what I would, is what I would actually say is if they can make it so that they, they get um, the, if you want to have utility in crypto, you go through Coinbase. Yeah. And so the utility of crypto they own, I think that makes a lot more sense. I think it's a high volume Facebook, like Google type play um, where they I mean, have to be I the love, utility of it. I love that you push back. And uh, I think we should keep this debate going. The, the crazy thing is it, because you brought this up, like, do you know how Bitcoin is taxed right now? Because that's interesting. It's not taxed as as a currency, it's taxed as an asset. So long-term capital gains, short-term tax, capital gains. That's another reason why as a transactional service, Bitcoin especially is kind of uh, challenged, let's say. Yeah, that, not wow. only are, are you using the energy consumption of New Zealand, but then if you want to pay someone, if you want to pay Domino's Pizza by Bitcoin, which I believe you can do, you're going to be taxed as a short-term cas- capital gain on that for the Bitcoin that you bought a week ago to fund that transaction. So that's the U.S. government and all big governments like getting in the way of things. But um, yeah, let's see where Coinbase goes. I don't know if it will be that. I mean, that's where I think more on the fidelity side of things. But I hear what you're saying. The gateway to get there is what you're talking about with the Facebook analogy. And you need with any highly technical thing, whether it's like building websites or whatever, you need these intermediaries that allows the masses to come and consume that. And I think Coinbase uh, has a, a head start there, which is interesting. Yeah. It just from what from what I've seen, just from like a business standpoint in the past, and I haven't done a deep dive on Coinbase, but I think I might now because I'm going to read their S1 right now that it yeah. exists out there. Um, I haven't done a deep dive with them, but just generally what I've seen in business historically is if you if you sit back and are purely the intermediary for something that doesn't have utility currently, like that is not going to work for you. Like you have to make sure the utility comes into play. And I think it's in their best interest to, to like feed and own uh, that utility as much as possible. They might at some point, if, if they start to own the utility and they're making money on the back end, like my boy Sherman's going to come after him. Right. But um, uh, it's an antitrust joke, antitrust and joke <laughs> usually don't go together, but but like that, that's definitely going to be broken up at some point. But I think that they they have to do that in order to in order to figure all this stuff out. Yeah, well, I might read the S one too. But you should. Uh, the more you play around with the app, I think you'll see that they are very much advocating uh, education. They they're trying to fill that void. There is no try. There's only do. I mean, whatever. 